0: Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with
1: John Largier, Director of the Bodega Marine Lab and Professor of Coastal Oceanography at UC Davis. His work is deeply interdisciplinary, working with experts in ecology, policy, health, social science, engineering, and other fields, developing an environmental oceanography paradigm. Centered on waterborne transport and ocean environments, he has tackled issues that include marine protected areas, aquaculture, water waste discharge, desalination, kelp forest loss, and coastal development. In this episode, we talk about what upwelling is and how it impacts the California coast, the movement of larvae, and how coastal environments are impacted by climate change. We try to take a holistic approach to understanding oceanography and how environmental changes are impacting the community.
0: We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor John Lager. Thank you for coming on today.
2: Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to talk, to talk to you and your audience, you know, about what I do. I find it fun, so hopefully, you guys will find it interesting at least. Definitely, we'd love
1: to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How would you get to Davis, and what got you interested in environmental science, particularly in oceanography?
2: Yeah, how did I get to? Well, so, so it's a long story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long life. No, I, I, I. Um, so maybe just tell a quick life story i suppose mm-hmm. i you know grew up in in south africa studied there in cape town very similar climate to california um i you know how, how did i get into oceanography because that's what i really studied i did physics and, and applied math undergrad mm-hmm. and um <clears throat> there's so many interesting things to study really so i was not really born an academic or really thought i'd end up being a professor I just found the world interesting um and many opportunities, but I I really enjoyed the ocean. So I spent a lot of time swimming and sailing and surfing, and I realized I could combine math and ocean, and that is kind of nice. And then I really started realizing I could combine them for a benefit of understanding the environment and caring for it more. So that's sort of how I got into oceanography mixed together with a bunch of opportunities. And that's, you know, that's life. There's some people who have career plans, they start when they're age five. And some of us just kind of enjoy life and we'd land up somewhere decent by spotting opportunity and going with it. So um, th- then uh, I, I got my PhD in South Africa and then I, I, I got a job, a position at uh, Scripps Institution Oceanography, UC San Diego. So I was in the faculty there for several years and then South Africa changed at the end of apartheid. So um, my wife and I went back there for several years as the University of Cape Town um, and then back to San Diego. So San Diego Scripps Institution is sort of one of the centers of ocean studies, oceanography in the world. So it was a really great place to Mm -hmm. be, really enjoyed it. But when uh, opportunity came up to come to Davis, the attraction was the strength of environmental science and ecology and uh, the things I'd been working on and that really was motivated by living in South Africa. Um, But the oceanography world was a little bit sort of earth science centric, it is not, <clears throat> it has changed now, but back uh, back in the 1990s, um, it was, I didn't feel like it was addressing the critical issues as much. So that was a big draw of coming to Davis, uh, that there was a strength here. And there was also a great culture of collaboration and of working together to, to address problems. So that's, and then I got the benefit of being based at Bodega Marine Lab, which is on the coast you know, between the ocean and the vineyard. so not a bad place. It's <laughs> sort of important in life as well. Yeah. yeah. So, did you
0: say like Scripps had a more linear type of science where you just focus on oceanography, and then Davis kind of applied that oceanography kind of what environmental oceanography? Correct.
2: Yeah, that's that's kind of the way I see it. Is and it is, um that I do environmental oceanography. So, uh, as I say. Everywhere has changed over over my life. Uh, academia used to be more siloed. If you studied uh, physical oceanography, the physics of the ocean, you studied that, and so I was, you know, I think a a bit of a helping the change in that in that I was interested in the physics and the biology and the chemistry, and now we've really got much broader where we you know studies of of socioecological systems. So we're looking. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it later on in terms of kelp forests on the mm-hmm. north coast here of. Linking together the physics of the ocean, together with the kelp forest, the biology, ecology, the chemistry, the oxygen, et cetera, and the people, mm-hmm. you know, and so uh, things have evolved a lot. But the what I was pushing w- when I was in San Diego and why Davis was an attraction was applying all the skills we have from oceanography had been developed over the last century, is strong, valuable, applying them to the environmental problems, you mm-hmm. know? And I felt that we weren't doing enough of that. Oh. And one could could have continued doing it from the center of oceanography, or you could do it by jumping back into immersing yourself in environmental issues, which I did a lot of back in South Africa, particularly in the late 90s after apartheid. I was very involved in, um, or part of the team writing the new coastal zone management policy, mm-hmm. which is not an academic exercise. So trying to interface, you, what do we know about the ocean to make a better policy, to make a better world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I wouldn't, not a very focused academic, um, but somehow I have survived. <laughs> <laughs> That's good.
1: And with regards to environments, could you walk us through a few of the different broad environments that are
2: existing in the ocean? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my perspective is um is more of of an earth scientist than a biological science scientist and and so um i mean my field is is somewhere what could i call it maybe you know it dovetails into env- environmental engineering and i suppose my field is sort of environmental hydrodynamics uh, so i'm interested in bodies of water they could be rivers or lakes or ocean but i work on the ocean mm-hmm. and so some water bodies are, are shallower, um, and there's fresh water and, sea- and seawater interacting. And that's what I'd call an estuary. So San Francisco baby classic estuary, right from Almost Sacramento, not quite, but from the delta, there's some salt water getting that far in. Wow! Out to Golden Gate and and out into the ocean, you um, will we'll see fresh water up here at Bodega Bay or down, you know, at Half Moon Bay coming out of the out of the bay. So that's the estuarine environment. Estuary normally inside of Golden Gate. Um, then another environment would be. Generally, kind of called the nearshore, sometimes the surf zone where waves are important. Mm. Uh, so, if we looked out of the window here at Bodega Marine Lab, we see you know the water's not flat, it's not a lake, yeah. and and the, the breaking waves are a very important part of pushing the water around and mixing it and doing stuff. So, estuaries, near nearshore ocean, I suppose bays stand out, like Monterey Bay, would be a classic one. I mean, but these are not always well defined words, but a part of the coastal waters that are maybe a little bit more protected. Um, but they're not they're not enclosed quite like San Francisco Bay, more open. Mm-hmm. Um, there are you know lots of bays around the world. California coast is sort of not quite as embayed, I suppose, as as some other areas. Um, and then when you and then you get beyond that, you get into the what we stand on the land. We'd see it as open ocean, but it's still coastal. The water depth is not that deep. The continental shelf really mm-hmm. is. Uh, probably hard to find, or mostly is to find that way, and there's still effects of of, of the land and the land runoff, and and then you get into the big ocean. The big ocean is so huge, uh, you know. I don't think we can conceive of it unless you've maybe done an ocean crossing. It's it's you look out now and you see the horizon. Maybe it's five miles off off there, you know. something about five thousand miles yeah. of ocean, <clears throat> and and but even there, th- so then you're getting also into really deep. Border. So you got the ocean away from the land and, then but the surface ocean where everything's living is just a, th- a thin part of it, maybe a f- thousand feet, you know, and the, mm-hmm. but the ocean, you know, is more like the 10, 20, 30,000 feet deep. So there's an abyssal ocean, the deep ocean, which is, there are many categories and, 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 and pieces of it. So I focus on that, on the coast, mm-hmm. I think because i like to experience the ocean also I think because that's where most people engage with it mm. and are affected by it and, and impact it as well yeah. and then when you study the
0: movement of water is that most impactful on the near shore environments
2: it's you know it's moving it's it's every, it, it the whole ocean is moving let's mm-hmm. put it that way yeah. <clears throat> and so it's moving at different scales and different energy a different the the space scales like you know the whole Pacific Ocean is going around in a big circle. Mm-hmm. Um and but then you might look at Horseshoe Cove here next to us and the water is probably going around in a circle as well. But the one the one is going round that circle slowly taking months and the other's going around in hours maybe. Mm-hmm. Um as Yeah the ocean is very different or aquatic systems are very different to the Our intuition as terrestrial organisms um, is constantly in motion, is constantly carrying things. And I I like to compare it with the blood circulation in the body because it links everything, Mm -hmm. you know? So just like you could have a a lung and a heart and a head, none of them would work unless the blood kind of circulated between them, uh, carrying sort of good things towards that organ and bad things away from it, if you like. Um, So the, yeah, no, the motion is critical everywhere. It's It tends to be a little bit more uh, energetic, but that's probably not true, it's, it feels energetic because when the, the land is still, whereas in the middle of the ocean, it's, it's all mm. moving, mm. you know? So like a wave in the middle of the ocean, it's not slamming against anything unless there's a ship there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it slams against the rocks because it's motionless. Yeah. And what is upwelling? How's that impacting Podega? yeah. <clears throat> that's the center. That's the most important thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because I, I study it. Um, so the the importance of upwelling is that it brings nutrients from depth and and and, f- and feeds the, fertilizes the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the process is is when around here, all along the west coast, you know, from British Columbia in winter down to mainland Mexico in, in summer, <clears throat> and most of the area all year round. Um, and you get the same thing happening in mid-latitude in South America, Peru, Chile, up to, up to um, Ecuador a little bit, you know, coasts of Africa and Europe, etc. We have these winds that blow towards the equator. Here they're northerly winds and they blow for months on end. And as they do, they they push the surface water in that direction. But because of Coriolis, the earth is spinning and the water it turns and moves offshore, the surface water. Yeah. And so... That then results in in bottom water coming up at the at the shoreline, uh, upwelling of water. Uh, so we need to draw some diagrams to really get into it. But you know, so you have small scale upwelling maybe in a lake as well, where the where the Coriolis is not involved. But this this ocean system, large scale upwelling, you land up with a massive, basically a large marine ecosystem. You call it, you know, as I say, it runs from. Uh, canada to mexico and there's just this this fountain of of nutrients and and fertilizer being brought into the into the sunlit layers uh, the euphotic zone and that you have a huge amount of primary production which then gets that phytoplankton you know gets eaten up by zooplankton by fish fish by birds and whales and sharks and everything so it's an incredibly bounteous region i think the upwelling areas, although they're long, they only maybe one percent of the surface of the Earth, oh, wow. and but the fish, the estimate they is like twenty percent of the fish we catch come from that that one oh, percent wow. area, wow. so yeah, very productive. And that's all within the euphotic zone. The well, the the, the primary production is happening in that euphotic okay. zone, uh, which is actually really shallow, can be, uh, you know, ten feet, maybe a hundred feet, okay. um, but then the the and the animal well, the plankton that eats up that phytoplankton and might be deeper and then the mm-hmm. fish that eat the zooplankton are even deeper yeah so life will go down deeper than that and and actually it's quite a bit of work now in the mesophotic zone uh, where um we with you know it's quite an ecosystem sort of in the twilight mm-hmm. zone but the majority is happening yeah right up near the surface okay and then does the coastline have to be there
0: for upwelling to occur?
2: yeah yeah good one. Um, for this wind driven upwelling it <clears throat> it is true because you are pushing water offshore and you cannot pull you know uh, water out of the out of the land so it has to get pulled up from below yeah so that's what creates it you can you it does occur offshore if if you have a, a, a shear zone I suppose uh, where the winds blowing really strongly in one place and weakening mm-hmm. in another. So you, you get that occurring somewhat. The one place it happens quite a lot is is a different story with the winds along the equator, and <clears throat> the Coriolis effect makes water turn to the right in the northern hemisphere and to the left in the southern hemisphere. So the the west winds, east winds, the trade winds that blow along the equator, blow north and south, and they make the water north of the equator go north and south of the equator go south. So again, you're creating a sort of a divergence. Definitely. That brings water up underneath. Quite a different um, upwelling situation. And then, when you talked about the water being pulled
0: out because the Earth is spinning, should people be thinking about the Earth like as a landmass being spinning within like a water ball in a way that makes up the oceans? The reason I brought it up was I heard about like when the Moon's pulling the tide. Right. The tide's always there towards right. the Moon, and then the yeah. Earth is spinning through. Yeah. It.
2: Yeah. They, that is the way we talk about it. You're right. Okay. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That you got this bulge of water, and then yeah. the Earth spins underneath. I mean, the Earth spins underneath it. Yeah. But the, all the water doesn't sit still. It's all yeah spinning. But that bulge is kept, you know, in place mm-hmm. by the Earth and the Moon. Yeah. Okay. You must have done an oceanography class. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and how should people think about the scale of the transportation of nutrition? Like, how
2: broadly is that movement of the of the of the, that flux of nutrients, yeah, yeah. it's um, so the, the the real coastal effect doesn't go out so far, maybe you know ten miles, but in the California Current, uh, there is both because of the increase in winds as you get offshore, as well as a bunch of very large scale eddies. Um, there is the the ocean is neutrified, if you like, through mm-hmm. upwelling. Mm-hmm. The effect sort of extends hundred hundred, a oh, couple wow. of hundred. Uh, miles offshore, okay. but the really strongest upwelling. And if you, if you could look at a satellite image of sea surface temperature, you'd see the cold water right at the coast, mm. the coldest water. And then you'd see these tendrils of cold water, uh, extending offshore, maybe not even a hundred miles, but because they take, you know, that the water doesn't warm up immediately mm-hmm. and then, and the nutrients are not used up immediately. So like off here, the water is going south and, uh, around Point Reyes, it tends to go offshore a bit, and it'll, you know, it'll easily get out fifty miles before it gets warm or, or or nutrients get used up. So there's a broad band of of productivity. Yeah. Um, so when the upwelling brings the
0: cold water from the bottom, that's how you're able to track it because you'll see the ocean temperature be a lot colder as it
2: yeah. stands out. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty handy. There's, there's a big temperature difference, which like is how many degrees, which is why it's so Cold here. Yeah. Um, so the upwell, you know, the water here in summertime is is typically a ten, de, well, ten degrees centigrade, fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. So even in the middle of summer, you know, the air temperature nighttime is fifty Fahrenheit.
1: Yeah,
2: and uh, even in a day like outside now, it's maybe sixty if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, if the wind's blowing and it's upwelling, and then in the fall, it the upwelling gets a bit weaker, and and the water gets a bit warmer, and the air gets a bit warmer. So, but if you went directly offshore, you know, a couple hundred miles, same latitude, the water would pr- probably be, uh, I should know this, right? You <laughs> know, maybe 20, oh, more than 20 centigrade. So, you know, in the 70s, it's wow. like, that. Oh, wow. a so big difference. And that, all that coolness is just because there's is water coming up all the time.
0: So, and then does that drive fish offshore to be in warmer waters or is that dependent on the fish?
2: It depends on the fish, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the fish like the food, so they tend to be in the cold water, okay. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, if depending what the organism is, if you if you um, trying to manage your temperature right, like a lot of the of the sharks, you know, spend. Their time, like I remember working with a colleague in the in the Galapagos, and the sharks sort of dive down into the cold water and go and feed, and then come back and hang out in the warm water, um, so that Mm -hmm. they could keep their heat budget going. But but most fish don't have that issue. Yeah. And then when
0: you talk about the California Current, does that expand throughout the entire coastline of California down
2: into Mexico and up north into Canada? Yeah. Excuse me. It's the it's the phrase used for that that whole large marine ecosystem or that large, cur- I mean, so I, I said earlier about the the Pacific Ocean going around in a circle. It's really the North Pacific Ocean. The South Pacific does the same thing, but the the North Pacific is what we call the a gyre or mm-hmm. the subtropical gyre. So the water is flowing um, eastward across Asia along the equator, up past uh, Japan, the Kurushiwa, which is a fast current like the Gulf Stream, very like the Gulf Stream. Oh. Across um, just south of Alaska, and then down the coast of of the U.S., and so it's it's in a clockwise direction. Mm-hmm. In the Southern Pacific, you have the same thing, but it's going anticlockwise yeah. because of the Coriolis. Same thing: South Atlantic, North Atlantic, etc. Um, so the the that southward arm of that gyre is the California Current. Mm-hmm. It would be f- flowing southward. Anyway, and then the the upwelling winds sort of help it speed it up nearer the shore, oh. and um, so yeah. So the California current really you know starts up Washington State, maybe British Columbia. It shifts a little bit seasonally, and then goes down, um, definitely down Baja California, and um, even extending down to mainland California more in the in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the equivalent. In, in South America, the Humboldt Current, or the Peru Current, mm-hmm. um, and, and in off Southern Africa, the Benguela Current, and of Northwest Africa, Europe, the Canary Current. Okay. And they're all, you know, big and broad and very productive. And then do you have a general speed range for, like, the currents? Yeah, this current is really slow. It's always disappointing when people hear it. <laughs> you know, so, like, the Gulf Stream is what we'd call a... a The Western boundary current is on the Mm -hmm. west side of the ocean. It's narrow and fast. And so is the Kourishu and the Galdas of South Africa, Brazil, etc. But the, the California current is really broad and shallow and slow. So I think the... The number in my mind is from a drifter study done a couple of decades ago, average of like three centimeters a second. It's like an inch inch a second, really (laughs) slow. But those eddies I talked about beforehand, they, they kind of buzzing around a lot faster. So, you know, big circular like motions and, Mm -hmm. and they, they might be 10 centimeters a second, you know, like three, four times faster. So there's plenty of currents going. Yeah. Um, But, but the other thing is that's the color, that's that big, broad California current. But if you come closer to the shore where the, where the real active upwelling is happening, you get a, an upwelling jet and that might be going, I said three centimeters per second, and then I said 10 centimeters per second for the eddies. That upwelling jet, quite easily 50 centimeters oh. a second, maybe we've seen it going 70, 80, oh, wow. almost, almost a meter a second, which is like two knots. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it'll, if the wind's really hard, um, and then a, that's a narrow current. So there's an actual active upwelling right near the shore. And then there's this broad California current going, mm-hmm. going southward. And do these currents drive the decisions behind transportation vessels at all? Not, I don't believe so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think um, if you more and more they have that information. Like we monitor, surf, monitor surface currents with the HF radar out the window there. And part of it, california-wide system so they can see if there's a strong current but i think the cost of going around it is more than yeah. just going yeah. through it uh, I, I do believe from um that they're really the the long persistent currents like the agalas and the gulf stream and so on that they might go a bit more inshore or a bit more offshore to avoid the real core of it mm-hmm. yeah but the ships are you know so i talked about that the, this upwelling jet maybe being two knots, but typically one knot or, or weaker. And, you know, ships are doing 10 knots or more. And um, it's difficult to, California current so broad, it's difficult to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I say, so like the Gulf Stream could be quite narrow. Maybe you could choose a route that's different. And then do you know the knots of the Gulf Stream? No, I don't, but it, it's, it'll be like two knots. Oh, wow. Probably, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're in the core.
1: Uh, and with regards to the transportation of nutrients, does that also encompass the transportation of larvae? Or is that yeah, everything's moved,
2: okay. right? You know, by the by the water. Um, yeah, so those nutrients will will come up to the surface, and then but every everything everything's moved, but everything uses everything's moved as well. So mm-hmm. although the nutrients are moving, the phytoplankton's moving with it. So then even it's really irrelevant to them. They're in a moving frame of reference, yeah. you know, and they just they just Taking up those nutrients and drifting along, and then the zooplankton now <clears throat> drifting along and eating the phytoplankton, and then you know as you as you get to zooplankton and to fish, then they have a choice: they can just drift with the water, or they can sort of swim against it. Or what a lot of the zooplankton, uh, so little drifting animals, are doing is that they can swim weakly, and often they'll just they will go down. Like the krill is a classic yeah. one, so they will um, migrate vertically. And so if you went down hundred meters, you know, completely different water mass. And if you do that over a few hours, you don't have to swim very fast, Mm -hmm. but if uh, way, way slower than if you try to swim against the current, for example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of of, uh, smaller animals tend to do that going, (coughs) excuse me, going up and down. And um, yeah, but the nutrients move with it and the the plankton move with it, and some fish allow themselves to be moved with it. And then the pollutants move with it, and you know, whatever plastics get dropped in the ocean move with it, yeah so everything larvae, I think is what you're asking. so I mean that's interesting in the ocean a lot of uh, uh, a lot of animals and particularly all the invertebrates that live on the shore you know the, the mussels and barnacles and crab and whatever they they you'd call them benthic they're, they're sort of fixed in place they're not drifting they're not planktonic but then they will release their, their eggs and or larvae um, and they will drift they'll be planktonic. And some of them will drift for weeks on end. Wow! And it's sort of a, it's like seeds in the wind, I suppose, is you know what you might think of, but yeah. um, it, it's similar but different. And then the, you sort of hope that they, some are going to come back, yeah, and and land on fertile ground, land in a good place where they can live a good life. Yeah, and you kind of
1: touched on it a little bit there with the plastics. Could you expand on what that situation is? Yeah,
2: I'm. I'm. I mean. Well, you probably know there are a lot of plastics going into the ocean and for for a long time um, we sort of thought about the big plastics, but a, a lot of them are so-called microplastics, which which would be plankton size, you know, so they're food size. And I think we still, well, I know we still have a huge amount to learn about its impact, you know. So we, we um, most people know about the the garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Um so these these currents, um, wind driven currents, and <clears throat> going down the coast of California and into that into that gyre, they tend to floating material. If you if you left it, and we've done this with GPS track devices, they will land up in the middle of the ocean, mm-hmm. um, or at least some of it will. In in that garbage patch is kind of a convergence zone, as opposed to upwelling, which is a divergence surface divergence, mm-hmm. and um, so so. You see a lot of debris out there, and it's it's a real concern. Um, but what you, but we wouldn't accumulate. What I'm going at is we wouldn't accumulate plastic in the California coast because it gets, advected away and because it's divergent. Um, but I told you earlier about how many fish are here and how active, if you like, how fast the ecosystem is. So if they're microplastics in in the food right food size, they're being eaten up. You know maybe. Mm-hmm we're not seeing them and we think, oh, it's cool. But in actual fact, they might be going into the food web way more than out there in the middle of the ocean. So it's fascinating. The middle of the ocean is a bit of a desert. Um, you know, it looks beautiful, and but it's not where the production is. It's all around the edge of the ocean, you know, which looks more turbid and more sort of murky. That's a rich, productive ocean. So if you are going to have a garbage patch where it is, is, is the best place. I'm not, a, yeah, <laughs> but it's... Except if you're an albatross, right, Or feeding there, or a you know shark swimming through there, or a tuna or something like, yeah, not not a good idea,
0: definitely. And then with that garbage patch, is it underwater or partially underwater? Because I think I've heard about how only a fraction of it is visible on like the surface <coughs> or something like that.
2: Yeah, so I don't I don't have the information that really, but um, there's actually quite a lot of work happening on exactly that question because the mm. idea is that. 90% of plastics are in you know, float. And so that we, s- I mean, you won't see them all because they, they're they very close to uh, the density of water. So they, they kind of float in inverted commas. They're near the surface, but they might be subsurface. Oh, yeah. But they're not sinking to the bottom. But peop- as people are looking at the bottom of the ocean, they, not so much the deep ocean, but coastal areas, they're finding more and more plastics. Yeah. So yeah, maybe they float in the beginning, but as they degrade or they get organisms growing on them or they or they um, started adhering to other particles, they're falling out onto the ocean and landing on the on the bed as well. So then they're not seen, but they're probably having a lot of impact there. Are there any international efforts to try to clean up
1: the guy or is that kind of just a, it's an issue and we're not quite sure how to solve it yet?
2: Yeah, there are a lot, no, there are a lot of people puzzling over it. I'm not aware of any, you know, uh, sort of Montreal... Mm-hmm. um <laughs> protocol or something like that, some way to, to handle it. Yeah. So yeah. um there <laughs> here in California and in, and really many places around the world there's a big push for if you want to call it emissions control. You know, like let's not let the plastic get in the ocean. So that's not different to cleaning it up, but um and and it's not every not everywhere doing that. Um but it's it's quite a challenge to to collect all the plastic all that plastic.
0: Yeah. You yeah. And then when you talk about the prevention side of things, could you speak a bit more about your conservation efforts outside of academia and especially in designing marine protected zones?
2: <coughs> yeah. I mean, um, I talked earlier about the you know environmental oceanography and the essence of that is it is probably comes back to when yeah, you know, when I was a kid, if I was gonna study science, I didn't want to sort of fiddle while Rome burnt, living in apartheid <laughs> South Africa. And most of my friends were, you know, plotting to overthrow the government. And and um, so I, I wanted my science to be meaningful to society in a short term as well. And so that, and I think it's maybe also was a strong ethic in South Africa in general. And so from early day, I've always been engaged on the science, I'm giving you a long answer because essentially what you land up with is do you become an advocate or do you try to be the objective scientist, Mm -hmm. right? And there's no such thing as a fully objective scientist, but there is the role of how would a scientist approach this problem? And there are clearly issues that I feel, uh, that I care about, and they motivate me to do the science. So really I'm not objective as to what issue Mm -hmm. I work on. Um, But so like working in marine protected areas, and beach pollution, and you know desalination, and all these things I've worked on. I try and um, work with people towards science-based decisions, and so I try not to be an advocate, even though I might have an opinion. And as I say, there's no, there's no, um, there's no true objectivity, but you just. Keep trying to say what's the, what's your expert opinion. Mm-hmm. What? How can you help this issue by being an expert and pointing to things? Which means sometimes you might have to, um, you know, pose things that you think are so-called good because as you as you learn the science, you realize, oh, yeah, maybe that human impact is is not as egregious as another human impact. Mm-hmm. So, like, an, we live in an overcrowded world. The world is is. Um, I'm getting philosophical, Jacques, sure. but anyway. We, we, the world is impacted by humans, and that's not going to stop, but we can um, reduce our impact by focusing on the things that really have the biggest impact. And so that's where I try and put a lot of my science. So, for example, with um, power plant cooling water, we did a study on that, and our analysis, and I think, I think we're right, is it does not entrain quite as many larvae as people think no. it does, but the politics sort of had pushed it towards the decision already so right now you know we don't we you cannot build a power plant um with sucking in seawater to cool it um and you know so that i came to a conclusion is different to what i thought i wanted to come to but then to honor that you know to be to be true to yourself about that. and So I'm not advocating for for building of power plants, um, sucking in seawater for sure, Uh, but just to be honest about what you find. And then then if you find something that you feel is really critically important, uh, to make sure other people know about it. So communicating what your science is super important. Advocating for a certain policy Mm -hmm. option is where you kind of cross the line. And for many of us, that's a real dilemma because we want to do that, but... um, So, yeah, the marine protected areas, uh, and most of these I've served on a sort of science advisory board or or I've worked on the problem and the understanding that we're going to advise you on the science. But um, it's many decades since, since the scientists thought that they were solving the problem. Because in the early days of my career, you know, the You'd figure out the science solution, and the scientists couldn't understand why the why the policy people didn't just listen to them because that is the answer, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but it's also the world of siloed thinking. So we were studying one aspect of it. It's mm-hmm. like, no, there's, these are multi-dimensional problems. Yeah. So, so what have
0: some of those findings been that have influenced <clears throat> how we design a marine protected zone?
2: Yeah. So in my context, probably the the most pertinent thing is is if you're going to, is the spacing of the marine protected areas. Um, So if you're going to have a reserve, it is, if it's part of a network of reserves, it has much more value. So we Mm -hmm. talked earlier about larval dispersal or or the transport of larvae. So if they're uh, mussels living on one rock and they um, release larvae, then they either have to come back to that rock or they have to land on, on another rock and, but it's not just mussels because there are rockfish as well and <clears throat> and there are barnacles and other organisms. And so you what you want to figure out is is the dispersal distance, you know, how far are, are these larvae likely to go in the time that they're in the plankton? And that's different for every organism and it depends on what behavior they have in terms of vertical migration and the season, is it the upwelling season or the rainy season? And trying to get an idea of of the different spacings that would be optimal, um, and and then how you know what sort of spacing might give you what size of each protected area and what spacing would give you the most bang for your buck in terms of the number of s- species that would benefit from it. So that sounds like a super theoretical thing, and in the end you don't design it, but you kind of look at at the designs people are coming up with and say, okay, no, this is way too big a gap between these two, you know. Mm. Or, so, so it's that, that um, yeah, that that travel distance between um, reserves was a big thing of, an example of what I worked on as part of that. That's fascinating.
1: And you mentioned how earlier in your career the government didn't do a great job of listening to the scientists. Could you talk about how that may have changed to where you are now as well as, where the United States stands in an international scale of listening to their scientific advisors when making policy.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, um, there's always been a, a dialogue between science and and, and governments, I guess. Um, so I'm not sure that they listened less, but perhaps I almost the scientists were, you know, m- more arrogant about their, okay. you know, their topic as being like we figured out the science, you know, you should do this now. Yeah. Um, But there, clearly there are some governments that didn't use a lot of science in making decisions, but maybe people were more intuitive, you know, sort of more traditional ecological knowledge. Um, Definitely, back in time, people were much more in touch with the environment and, and and I think cultures that had more elder-oriented decision-making, you know, sort of, it was just sort of baked in there. Um, But there are, uh, there was a period yeah where where or maybe some places and some governments which haven't really used science to make decisions and and still are <laughs> and and it it waxes and wanes, right? Mm-hmm. because um I mean in our country right the the lobby pressure is really strong, and so um science is just one aspect of it. Um, I miss the second part of what you're asking though,
1: I was asking more on like within the global scale. Does the U.S. do a good job of here, like working with their scientists to try to make the best policy? Yeah, yeah. This is con- a, bro- a
2: broad stroke. Yeah, of the yeah. Not. <clears throat> I mean, our culture is kind of a science-based culture, so yeah. We, I think, we do well in that way. But we're also a huge country. Yeah. You know, so definitely in smaller countries, I think is a more direct connection between science mm-hmm. and and. Politicians, at least that's my experience in in South Africa, both in apartheid South Africa and post-apartheid South Africa, that there, is, I would land up in discussions with people who are not scientists much more than I do here, mm-hmm. and here scientists tend to speak to scientists. I'm this is a way way broad uh, yeah. comment, right? <clears throat> and so it all all the science policy interaction tends to happen in in a very structured way, mm-hmm. um, and there are. There are lots of uh, forums and, and, and processes, both at the state level, local level, federal level, um, to ensure that the agencies do as much as they can based on science. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, and I guess there's, you know, the two parts of government as well, aren't there? There, There's, um, if you if you like the executive branch or the sort of the career government who really are probably good, really good at that. And then there's a, the political part of government elected who are really balancing so many different um, things and sometimes they some of those people don't always seem to care a lot about the science um but i don't i've never done their job it must be pretty difficult to keep everybody happy yeah. yeah certainly and
0: it just seems that the more the general public can become a bit more aware at maybe a high level of what is actually happening in the environment right like that would be a lot more helpful to push the politics towards listening. Yeah, a little it, bit more.
2: It, it is interesting that because I, you know, I talked earlier about trying not to be an advocate and trying to always be skeptical, uh, even of my own opinions. And um, in in the environmental realm, as the world has become more environmentally conscious and and sensitive and caring and all the rest of it, um there is some sometimes the environmental interests. Bec- sort of um people get get excited about an idea and and can push and advocate and sometimes go beyond the science we have let's put it that way Mm -hmm. so sometimes i feel like the science we're doing is as much to guide the environmental movement as it is to guide the people who want to screw the environment. Yeah. Um, and so the one, you know, we'd like to think are well-intentioned and the other, I'm not sure. They're well-intentioned in a different way maybe. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's 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 quite interesting how that's evolved. Um, so, you know, there, and climate change has been really interesting. It was because <clears throat> there was a period, it was sort of, it's a little bit better now where it's all doom and gloom because people just, can't you believe me? The climate's changing, we've been telling you this for decades. And so they're kind of up the ante all the time. Mm-hmm. and and started claiming things that we didn't really have the science basis for it. It probably is right, could be right, but you know, you really, as a scientist, you sort of got to know, is this, you know, when you say this is due to climate change, you can't just say it. You actually have to have some um, yeah. some some reasons for it: like data, theories, models, whatever, some basis for it. So it's interesting. Do you think we're getting more objective with the projections then? Uh, yeah, not not sure. Um, yeah, I mean this this is a an ongoing game. All of all of the problems that are that are developing, sort of as one's thinking them out, then people are responding, and different interest groups are responding. Yeah. And yeah, 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 I don't know. I mean, that's the aim.
0: Yeah, because I feel like if people took that approach, like you talked about with the power plants next to the ocean you want him to believe that it's impacting, but Oh, it actually wasn't impacting as much of as you thought if there was more of that discussion of here's the open science as it changes, I think it would be a lot less polarizing and we could actually get somewhere and be like, Hey, here's the most impactful policy that we could possibly have. Right. Let's implement that. And then on that note, how has the policy around protecting our kelp forests in California? Like, how effective has that been?
2: Yeah, so the, I mean, I suppose in many ways, there's not a, a lot of policy. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of policy around f- fishing and overfishing, of course. You know, so for example, abalone or mm. even urchin fishing, whatever they they've been. Um, a lot of policy, well-thought-out policy about how many can you catch and, you know, how can you catch them and so on. But in terms of the kelp forest itself, so, I think you're aware that we've lost like 90% of our kelp forests in the last decade in California, so in particularly 2014 and fifteen, the same sort of weather system gave us a long drought in 13, 14, 15, Mm -hmm. made the ocean very warm, and that Warm water kind of capped over the upwelling so that you didn't get this nice upwelled water coming. And it happened at just the same time as a few other things like sea star wasting. um, Sea stars, often called starfish, Um, a disease went through them and they eat urchins, which will become clear in a moment. Um, And and a few different things happened at the same time, let's say, and we lost... uh, we lost a lot of the kelp forest and they haven't bounced back. And the kelp forest is, is like a forest. Like if you walk in a redwood forest or any forest, you'll see lots of birds flying around and you'll see understory and you'll see you know, animals and so on. So the kelp forest is the same thing. It's an incredible habitat. And so I'm trying to think if there's any policy that directly relates to kelp. I mean, you can't go and just cut it down. Yeah. Um, so I guess there is a policy in that way, but, um, but it, it sort of, a lot of it died back due to sort of natural causes, if you like, although mm. anomalous, it hasn't happened in 100 years or 200 years or, um, yeah, so now the question is, well, how to make it, how to make how to make it come back? And this is a, you know, the socio-ecological system approach, like what, you know, what is most important to people and, you know, what's important to the communities that live alongside the kelp forest and who, who, who use it or catch fish, you know, die for urchin or something in that place and how does it relate to climate change? Was that warm event uh would it have happened without climate change or is it just something that happens every few centuries by 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 luck or, or bad luck? Mm-hmm. And what about that disease that killed the sea star trying to figure it all out? And then what management actions can you take? For example, so, so why it's not bouncing back is because the urchin um are, are eating the baby kelp plants before they can grow. Oh. Whereas if there's lots of kelp and not too many urchins, they just eat the broken bits of kelp that fall off, if you like, um, like leaf litter almost. <clears mm-hmm. <clears <throat> but there's this explosion of purple urchins and not much kelp, so then they shift into the mode where they'll climb up the kelp and eat the whole plant. And oh, wow. now it's like, in even as baby plants, they you know just eat them. So it's pretty it's pretty sad, but their the management approaches their rather than policy approaches you know where maybe uh, some people just want to go and smash all the urchins and so that's being done in an experimental way it just seems rather violent and the other approach is i don't know maybe it's just as violent as is, is to uh, catch those urchins and bring them here in the marine lab, there's some experiments happening like that and, and and fatten them up so that you can then sell the, the uni so you know oh, huh. sort of create a fishery out of it. Because all those urchins out there, the thousands, the millions of them, they're all kind of starving. And then they so-called zombie oh. urchin, a starving urchin can just exist like that for years with almost no food. And as soon as the kelp comes back, it starts eating again. Interesting. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, but so that's, you know, there's a management response. Then, but what policy response, yeah. you know, could you put in place to prevent this or to, um, so this is, this is a good example of, you know trying to develop some science before you develop a policy yeah um but you can't sit around forever developing uh, waiting for scientists to you know get the final answer and we're well known for navel gazing right <laughs> you know what is it paralysis for analysis i keep yep. thinking know, oh, well hold on we will get yeah. it you know you need to act at the same time so yeah
1: yeah, that's super interesting. I was talking to someone uh, in Monterey about the sea urchin thing uh, a couple months ago. So,
2: yeah, good to know a little bit more about it. It's yeah, classic, uh, you know, complex environmental problem, and then you bring yeah. humans into it equally so. Yeah, yeah, especially when our systems are not dynamic enough to
0: adjust <laughs> as the information comes in.
1: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and then stepping out a little bit, could you talk about? At a broad level, the research going on at the Bodega Marine
2: Laboratory and how it is truly interdisciplinary? Yeah. So probably um this is a this is a fun conversation. We don't want to talk forever, right? Yeah. So there, there's a lot happening here. Um there are uh it depends how you count it, 10 or 12 research groups, and each research group's doing something different. So each group is, you know, led by like a, a faculty member, although only eight of those are UC Davis, and then they're researchers who um, are through the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, okay. or, or so there, or the National Marine Sanctuary. Or, mm-hmm um and each person each group is really has a different focus you know some people are studying shellfish pathology and um disease and oysters and some like I am studying sort of ocean plumbing if you like how of the water <laughs> move in and out of the the bay or working racial River estuary and things and Then some <clears throat> are working on fish or on toxicology you know pol- pollutant effects and others on microbial's a lot of microbial ecology questions you know the world's full of microbes that we don't and, that we hardly know about. So very exciting research, um, climate change and deoxygenation of the ocean, acidification of the ocean, um, <clears throat> many different topics. What's really cool though is that, you know, we, we're we in different academic departments, even different colleges on campus. So if we were on campus, we would talk to each other occasionally, whereas here we sort of all in the same place and our students all talk with each other. And so it's a, it's a very rich environment for cross-fertilization of ideas. Mm -hmm. And so a really great place for uh, cross-disciplinary or more than just multiple disciplines, integrated studies between the disciplines. Um, Still kind of in the biophysical world, primarily. Um, Mm -hmm. We do actually connect a lot with colleagues who are on campus who are in in the the social sciences, economic sciences, policy sciences. Um, But here, the, the people who are based here are doing Either they're doing field work, you know, and that's why we're here. Yeah. You can walk out the door and <laughs> put your toe in the ocean or they're doing laboratory work on, on seawater organisms. So mm-hmm. we bring the ocean into the laboratory, basically, you know, big pipe brings it, goes through a bunch of tanks and then tanks of people do, are doing some culturing. Have pi- you have a pipe that goes from you, the ocean into Yeah, yeah, big pipe. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and then it goes a bunch, of, a lot of little pipes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the, in in a lot of our labs, you can turn a they force it on and get seawater out of it. Well, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then the big tanks, I think you saw the display yeah, tanks yeah. coming in with rockfish in them and and uh, and smaller tanks, like I talked about the urchin work, they're keeping a bunch of urchins in tanks. And then um, experimental tanks, you know, where uh, the carbon dioxide levels are raised like ocean acidification mm-hmm. or, or the water's warmer than it used to be and seeing how, so, yeah, people are either doing that kind of work where they need this, this on-demand mm-hmm. seawater system um, or, or they're doing field-based work. And the field-based work actually is, a, is you know, could be on the on the rocky shore out there, could be on the beach, could be in the Bodega Harbor, which is an estuarine, you know, salt marsh, seagrass, um, could be out on a boat, so we have boats that go offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're situated in the Bodega, main, Bodega Marine Reserve, which is one of the... University of California Reserves. Um, and so some people out here are actually studying the the coastal prairie red vegetation or like the nematodes or beetles mm-hmm. that live in it. Um, in the marine lab, we tend to be marine scientists, yeah. but the, the reserve has a lot of visiting scientists sure. who do that kind of work as well. So that's the cool thing is, yeah, it's this integration of, of what do we get up to. And then how can students get involved here? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's there, there are quite a lot of graduate students who will um, be resident out here. They might do a year of coursework uh-huh. in Davis and then they will live here. Um, and so probably two thirds, let's say, of, of the students who work for faculty, for us who are resident here will be resident here as well. Mm-hmm. And then a, a number of students who are, um, whose advisors are on campus will also land up being resident here because of the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. So they are quite a, you know, there are probably twice as many faculty, or as many faculty on campus who use the lab a lot as those who are resident here, and then undergraduate, you know, the, the the primary way is through the classes. So in the summer um, quarter, we have the two summer sessions. <clears throat> One could look online if you are interested in doing this, and we really focus on experiential education. Of course, you know, you're studying the ocean, it's right there, you can look out the window, but you can also go and and include in the classroom the fact that we go out on a boat or go onto the rocks. or um, So, and then you'll also, so they tend to be smaller classes, you know, 20, maybe 30 at the max, sometimes less than 20. Um, so very much, and then you're seeing your professor every day, even if you're not in class, so you're seeing them in the, in the corridor. So because uh, most students are on residence for that. People get to know each other well. It's a really uh, incredible experience, it seems like, for for everybody. Um, next year, we're planning to have a fall quarter as well. Oh, uh, wow. So we'll have a bunch of new classes, and I'm just trying to organize this so it f- fits in with the curricula for students, you know, so it's not disruptive, but actually it, it's... advances them. Yeah, so you're not taking extra time. So particularly for the... The marine and coastal sciences major. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to have it so it, it would be an option that's going to be as easy as being on campus. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So those are the two primary ways. I mean, there are some undergraduate students who have uh, get involved in research, research internships, or you know, different ways. Uh, I wish we could have more. We're trying to create more and more uh, opportunities for that because that's. Um, yeah, that's a great experience as well. Certainly, it's all very
1: amazing. We'll make sure to link to all of that. And then, as we wrap up, one final question: How can we be
2: better stewards to the ocean? How can we be better stewards? Yeah, that's a really good one. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> at two levels, right? At the individual level, it's uh, a lot of it is about pollution. You know, don't make sure you you know that that the, the storm drains always like because goes goes downstream, lands up in in the ocean. So you know wherever you're disposing of things, and if you on a boat or near the ocean, um, just be aware of where things land up. And but then it it is a lot of it's happening at at the societal level of how we um, how we how we altering things. Um, yes, no. I should have a quick answer, right? I mean. <laughs> um, so if you think about how the ocean is being impacted, we overfished. So don't, you know, if you're going to eat fish, eat fish that, you know, are sustainably caught. Um, if you're catching fish, know that you're catching it in this, this, this is a sustainable way, which is if it's permitted fishing in California, it's going to be. Um, the We've we've polluted the ocean. Um, so, you know, be aware of polluting the environment in general. Um the climate change issues is a big one but that's really you know the conundrum there is that it's a global thing but mm-hmm. the oceans getting affected by that the oceans the coastal oceans affected a lot by the changes in in water as well you know so we dewatered a lot of the rivers and so the estuaries um, mm. are different to what they used to be well, San Francisco Bay and the Delta and the Delta Smelt and all the rest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly an example of that. Mm-hmm. But the the lack of fresh water probably has an impact throughout the bay. And even as I say, the, that fresh water you'll see it up and down the coast. That work hasn't been done, but but I know from other rivers uh, working a little bit in the Zambezi and Mozambique, for example, you know, the damming of the Zambezi. Had a huge effect on not only the ecosystem but the, pr- the shrimp fishery or prawn fishery offshore. Um, <clears throat> so then there are myriad ways. So don't waste water. You yeah. um, know yeah, that'll help the ocean as well. Um, and uh, trying to think of some of the other really big impacts on the ocean. Uh, you know the power. Yeah, we talked about the power plant issue. Um, that's maybe a little moot now. Yeah. Um, so there, there are. M- be a conscious, um, conscious person as to you know, and, t- and tread lightly. It's, it's the same as most environments, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and then be and then be active. I mean, if you're not, if you don't have to do science to help us understand and and develop the right approaches to the ocean. So a lot of a lot of ocean is happening at a at a societal level through governance because our villages are not out in the ocean. Yeah, either. yeah, certainly. Yeah.
1: Well, it's been wonderful. Thank yeah. you very much for your time, Thanks, professor.
2: Keller. Thanks, Brent. Thank you.
1: Yep. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.